man in the arena, the man of worship, the man who rests in God's promises. These are some of the images I see in David, and today I want to talk about him as the man at work. Now, we're about to turn to a chapter that seems a bit tedious, maybe even boring. It's mostly a summary of events and list of items and names. But that's sort of a reflection of life. Isn't that life? Most days you don't get conquests of Jerusalem, dance parties, and prophetic visions. Most days are full of grind, tough projects, difficult people, inventory, audits, long days, lengthy board meetings. My elders know all about those. Now, Christian leaders should encourage us men to endure these ordinary struggles. But there's at least one prominent author out there who's not that helpful, in my opinion. In fact, he characterizes manhood to be essentially wild at heart. He says the core of a man's heart is undomesticated. He says that our true identities in the wilderness not in the cultivated garden, were made for adventures. We can, but we can easily take that to mean we're less than ourselves as men. Every time we're stuck in the office or traffic, bound to obligations of marriage, parenthood, society, our commitments. Now I'll tell you what, the best way to understand ourselves as men is to stay in the scriptures. The word encourages the regular and routine ways of living in obedience to God. Now, David's job seems, at at first glance, pretty spectacular since he's a warrior and king. But we read passages like 2 Samuel 8, and we should know that even his job was filled with bad days and the tedious. So let's see how he handles it. We turn to 2 Samuel 8, and if you're following along in your pew Bible, it's in page 216, 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg, Amma, from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with the line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Betta and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. Then Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer. Then Toy sent Joram, his son, 
to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahituv, and Achimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Keratites and the Pelatites, and David's sons were chief ministers. Told you. So, so with all the names and places here, it's helpful to begin with general principles before turning to specific details. It's also helpful when the narrator reveals his inner thoughts and periodically summarizes the action. Let me start backwards. David's role as ruler over his people is summarized in verse 15. He administered judgment and justice. So it's not that hard to separate verses 15 to 18 from the earlier verses. As for verses 1 to 14, we see how David deals with external threats to his kingdom. He overcomes the resistance of rival groups coming at him from the west, the east, the north, and the south of Israel. Amidst all that conflict, we should note the repetition in verses 6 and 14. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. This key statement explains why for David, all he does is win, 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 no matter what. It explains the repetition of that formulaic phrase, blank became David's servants. Fill in that blank with the Moabites in verse 2, the Syrians in verse 6 as they brought tribute. There's also all the Edomites in verse 14. So all these words and phrases unite verses 1 to 14. But if there is a way to divide up this section further, I'd make the incision between verses 8 and 9. In verses 1 to 8, there's a bit more emphasis on fighting and winning. Some verbs in the original language repeatedly show up and reinforce this idea. First is naka, which means strike, smite, or slay. It's translated as attacked in verse 1, defeated in verse 2 and 3, killed in verse 5. Besides this word, there are two other words in the original translated as one word in English. It's took in verses 1, 4, 7, and 8. So practically all throughout verses 1 to 8, David's going into battles and he's emerging victorious. He's subtracting from his enemies and adding to himself because the Lord preserved him wherever he went. 
Moving on to verses 9 to 14, the focus is still on David, but the emphasis now is now on more on the consequences of his success. For one, Toy, the king of Hamet, sends a gift through his son. David dedicates that gift, along with the spoils of war, for God's purposes. See that word dedicated twice in verse 11? Another consequence is that David's growing in his international fame. Again, all this happens because the Lord preserved them wherever he went. So that gives us three divisions, verses 1 to 8, verses 9 to 14, verses 15 to 18. And based on that structure, I say God saves the king in all his battles to accomplish three purposes, three purposes that have relevance in our spiritual warfare. Now, to be clear, today, church leaders and members in the New Testament do not, hear, do not bear the sword like David and Israel did in the Old Testament, but we do rely on the same God in our spiritual battles. We talked a little bit about that spiritual battle as Brother Noah read that passage for us and led us in prayer. So these principles apply generally in our time as well, as we strive together for the faith of the gospel, as we cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So as spiritual warriors, first, oppose ungodly resistance against God and his kingdom. Oppose ungodly resistance against God and his kingdom. Secondly, dedicate resources for God and his kingdom. Dedicate resources for God and his kingdom. Thirdly, represent the authority of God over his kingdom. Represent the authority of God over his kingdom. First, oppose ungodly resistance against God and his kingdom. Now, as I said earlier, David's facing the enemies of Israel on all sides. We start with the Western Front, with those pesky Philistines. Here's a review of their annoying ways. At the end of Saul's reign, the Philistines absolutely humiliated Israel. As Saul and his sons died at Gilboa, and the Israelite army was defeated, Men forsook their cities and fled. The Philistines came and dwelt in them. But once David took his seat of power over all of Israel, he defeated them twice at the Valley of Rephaim. He drove them back from Geba to Gezer. In other words, Israel started to expel them out of their land. That momentum continues in today's passage in Israel's favor, is David now moving into Philistine territory, attacking and taking their cities. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 18.1 specifically names Gath and its towns. Here in today's passage, we read about Methdeg Amma, is literally the bridle of one unit, which could mean like a token of surrender. Basically, the narrators are saying the king severely limited the power of Philistia during David's reign. So that prophecy we saw back in chapter 3, verse 18, is coming true. 
By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. Next, we turn to the other side, to the eastern front of Israel. But the Philistines were clearly threats. It's a bit more complicated with the Moabites. Recall that David's great-grandmothers, Ruth the Moabite. More recently, while uh, David was on the run as a fugitive chased by Saul, David brought his parents to the king of Moab and entrusted them to his care. That's back in 1 Samuel 22. But something must have happened since then. Maybe they revolted. Perhaps they mistreated David's father and mother, even killed them. That would explain David's severe capital punishment in verse 2. He executed two-thirds of the people and spared a third. King of Israel decimated their resources, human and material. They were enslaved and forced to pay tribute. Now we get the impression that David's battles against Philistia and Moab were not that difficult. We just have two verses here. But as we turn to the northern front, the king faces a tougher task. There's a network of people that met in the person of Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. The kings of Zobah have been fighting Israel since Saul's time. We saw that back in 1 Samuel 14. At this point, the power seems to be consolidated in one king. And he dared to venture north with the support of the Syrians in Damascus, south of him. At one point, Hadadezer enjoyed his rule over north as far as Hamath, closer to river Euphrates. It was while he went to recover some of his land and establish his power there that David made his move. Now, the king of Israel was justified in making this conquest. God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, 18, to your descendants I will have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So the Lord gave David success. He defeated a technologically more advanced army with all their chariots and horsemen alongside foot soldiers. There's a bit of an ambiguity with the number of horsemen, but it is certain that David refused to trust in horses. He hamstrung most of them. This is a wise move. That's because God made it clear back in Deuteronomy 17 that he did not want the king to multiply horses. He embodied the principle of Psalm 33, verse 16 to 17. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. He practiced what he preached in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. With such faith in the Lord, with God on David's side, the armies of Zobah and Damascus did not stand a chance. They lost chariots, horses, warriors, shields of gold, and large amounts of bronze. Hadadezer lost much wealth from his cities, Betta, Perotai, Tivat, and Kun. And we'll return to these spoils in a moment. But first, I want to skip down to Edom in verses 13 to 14, and here's why. It's likely 
that when Syria and Edom fought Israel, it was around the same time, or one right after another. As David went up north towards Euphrates, the Edomites in the south saw an opportunity to attack. So now the king found himself fighting, battling on two fronts, with the enemies eventually coming together in a place called the Valley of Salt, probably near the Dead Sea. Now, in the end, it was all right. The king took care of the, Philist- uh, the Syrians. Sorry. Meanwhile, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, led a detachment of troops and faced Edom. Abishai got some major help from his brother Joab, who killed two-thirds of the Edomites. Now, yet these battles were some of David's toughest challenges. 2 Samuel 8, again, just provides more of a summary. But if you turn to Psalm 60, you'll see the despair of the king and his men at the time. David felt abandoned by the Lord, as if he's nowhere to be found. He and his men were overwhelmed. And I'll just read a few verses from the psalm. Psalm 60 at the beginning and at the end. And here's Psalm 61 to 3. O God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches where it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. And then later in the same psalm, David asks in verses 9 to 12, who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. When David fell downtrodden, He looked to God who trod upon his enemies. We see in this psalm and other psalms the same basic truth. To overcome ungodly resistance against God and his kingdom, we must trust in God. We need the Lord, his help, his weapons, his armor. This principle extends to our personal struggles too. I'm talking about the struggle with our flesh, with our sin power of the spirit we can put to death the the deeds of our body and the carnal ways of earth and with every victory and success there's a chance to glorify the lord proclaim his name to ascribe greatness to him and that leads to the second principle for spiritual warfare as the lord preserves us dedicate resources to god or for god and his kingdom Now, in the midst of all these clashes, it's nice to see somebody yielding to David voluntarily. And that somebody is the king of Hamath, toy or two, barbarian spelling. He realized how the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He sends his son Joram, also called Hadoram, to bless and greet the king of Israel. Now, he did not come empty-handed. He brought articles of gold, silver, and bronze. And these precious items were dedicated to the Lord along with spoils of war. We read in other passages what this dedication means exactly. 
We find in 1 Chronicles 18.8 that Solomon, the next king of Israel, took the bronze from Hadadezer's cities and used them for the temple, the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles. We also read in 1 Kings 7.51, all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. This is later. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. See how as David worked for God's fame, David made himself a name. Again, all this was possible because the Lord preserved him wherever he went. Now with gratitude and passion, we too can dedicate resources for God and his kingdom. We regularly pray that our offerings would be used for evangelism and discipleship every time we give our offerings on Sundays. And this is nothing new in the church. Apostle Paul was thankful for the Philippians' generosity and fellowship in the gospel. He also exhorted the Corinthians to abound in the grace of giving. The fact is, ministry costs money. Spiritual warfare requires, at minimum, some material resources. Fuel for the engine a building for gathering, food and water to stay alive. And we as church must be good stewards and dedicate resources for God and his kingdom. God has no doubt blessed us materially. How are we going to use this to glorify God, to fulfill the Great Commission? Besides putting to use material resources, there's the matter of human resources, and we turn to the last portion of 2 Samuel 8 and see how David represents the authority of God over his kingdom. The transition from verses, uh, verse 14 to 15 is quite natural. The Lord preserved David wherever he went so that he could reign over all Israel. The summary statement pertains to those under his rule, now in verse 15, not those opposed to it. David administered judgment and justice to his people. This is God's design for royal authority in Israel back then and in the coming kingdom. But even today in the church age, the concept of authority in general is biblical and essential like fathers over sons, like bosses of employees. Rulers below can reflect the just rule of God above. Now, obviously, we cannot reflect God's sovereignty perfectly. Even the best of us are limited. And wisdom comes from recognizing our limitations. And with such a big task as running a nation and defending it, David knows the importance of having basically what we see here is a cabinet. It's worth noting that there's no list of officials like this found under the reign of Saul, the previous king who, frankly, failed miserably. David, on the other hand, makes good application of Proverbs 20, verse 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise counsel, wage war. So David's a capable warrior. He can't fight every battle. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. 
Now, his character is questionable at times, but his abilities, certainly not. Next, we see in the second half of verse 16, a recorder named Jehoshaphat. Uh, The title of recorder is related to the verb for remember. This position appears to involve more than scribing or acting as a secretary, but how much more, we're not really sure. But it does seem that Jehoshaphat was good at his job. He worked under both David and his son Solomon. Moving on to verse 17, we have two names as priests, Zadok and Ahimelech, also called Abimelech. The two names represent two lines of Aaron. One will eventually supplant the other during Solomon's reign, according to the prophecies spoken to Eli back in 1 Samuel 2. Next, Sariah is also called Shapsha, and he's a scribe. He's likely less prominent than Jehoshaphat, the recorder. In verse 15, we have Benaiah. We learn later that he killed, killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. So that's, if you can do that, you can be in David's courts. You know, that will be a good security guard. Um, Benaiah leads two groups of men, the Keratites and the Pelatites. We're not sure exactly where they're from. Though they seem related to the coast of Philistines, if we look at some other passages. They may have come from the island of Crete. Whatever their origins, they're hired bodyguards, intensely loyal to David, devoted to the king. As an added strategic bonus, because they're foreigners, they're less likely to get caught up in the middle of tribal disputes. Finally, we learned that David's sons were in his cabinet. That's not surprising in a dynasty. But their title of chief ministers has caused some discussion. It's Cohen, a word for priests in the Bible, something that David made his sons priests according to the order of Melchizedek. But it's more likely that this word Cohen can have a more general meaning. David's sons were more like king's chaplains and royal spiritual advisors. They did not take on Levitical duties. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 18.17 suggests this. Now, I can see the value of involving your sons in ministry. In David's case, it's not going to turn out well. That's why later David and Solomon would seek candidates for this office outside of family. But at this point, by all indications, this was an able and well-functioning administration with structure and order in place, justice and judgment results, positive results. With help, good leaders can represent the authority of God over his kingdom. Now, as saints in the church, we too must represent the authority of God. And like David's administration, church structure and order are important. We've got to figure out quickly how church authority works, practically speaking, how much is entrusted to elders and deacons and how much is left to the members Working out these details are going to help us be at our best as a local congregation and bring glory to God. With biblical organization in place, with wisdom, we can stand fast in one spirit, get behind our leaders, with every part doing its share as members, and work together to fulfill the Great Commission.
Now, whether it's David back then or Christians today, we know, we look at these passages, leaders will not be perfect. We suffer setbacks and losses and spiritual battles, whether it's at home, work, or churches. Like, just think about the sermon points, the three sermon points, we can see how we fail. Take another look. First, I said, oppose ungodly resistance against God and his kingdom. We don't always do this well. We can stand up here and preach about being lights of the world. But are we brave enough to expose the unfruitful works of darkness out there? Secondly, I said, dedicate resources for God and his kingdom. At times, we may pledge to give money to good causes, but we might do it grudgingly or of necessity. Thirdly, represent the authority of God over his kingdom. Again, we fail at this too. We call ourselves a unit or body of leaders. Look inside, we're filled with selfish ambitions and dissensions. There's rivalries. There's overreaching of power. But there's someone who is and will be a perfect ruler. And we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who is perfectly man, perfectly God. The one without sin and without fault. When he returns to earth, he'll be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He'll do what David did, but much better. He'll strike the nations and rule them with the rod of iron. The wealth of nations will be gathered into Israel and dedicated to the building of the temple. The saints caught in the rapture and the saints who are part in the first resurrection will reign with Christ for a thousand years and have power over nations. Now I hope to see everyone in this room in that kingdom. But I can't take you there. You can't get there on your own. That's because we're all sinners. We're no better than the ungodly nations that worship idols. We too have rebelled against the Lord, breaking his commands, lying, stealing, lusting, taking his name in vain. It's clear in the Bible that the unrighteous, the fornicators, the covetous, the selfish will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Left to our own, we'll be cast out. As the price for our law-breaking is hell, eternity apart from God. Praise God that he sent his son the first time 2,000 years ago to save us from our sins. The perfect ruler is also the perfect servant, living a perfect life of obedience to the Father. He then gave up that life as payment when he went to the cross. He died there as our substitute, paying the penalty of sin that we should pay. He was buried and rose again from the dead on the third day, He ascended to heaven, and then uh, 40 days later, the Father's right hand. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind, the living and the dead. Before it's too late, surrender and come to his side. You can have God for you, not against you. 
You can be more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For that to happen, you must repent and trust in Jesus. First, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means turn away from sin and self-righteousness. Next, turn to Jesus. Place your hope of eternal life in him. Salvation is a gift from the Lord, not a work to be earned. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And as our faith grows, we realize more and more that it's the Lord who preserves us wherever we go. So as we sing, listen to these words of comfort adapted from the scriptures. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you preserve us you preserve us because we trust in you. We trust in your power. We trust that you are faithful to your promises. Lord, so whatever obstacles we may face, temptations we face, Lord, we know that you are there, you are faithful, you give us the power, all that we need to overcome. We thank you for uh, this firm foundation that you are with us wherever we go. And Lord, help us to be wise. Help us to, as an expression of gratitude, as an expression of our love for you, give to you what we have. And to to represent you in all our relationships, especially those who are under us as we take our roles as parents, uh, employers, or um, as, as church leaders. Help us to show and represent your glory, and your authority. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.